Good morning. Always good to be with you, to see you today. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Last week we began our series working through this first book of the Bible, and we covered verse 1. We'll be moving faster than that through the rest of the the book. But verse 1 is the foundation of our origins and the foundation of all of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Today, we're going to look at the, the big picture of creation week with a focus on the first five days of creation, and next week we'll focus on days six and seven. So as we read this passage, uh, I want us to be paying attention first to the activity of God that we see throughout uh, this account, and consider what is it that God wants us to know about him and so our relationship with him. So Genesis 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. 
And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come humbling ourselves before you, Creator God, Lord God. We ask that you would give us sight of you that would cause us to be those who are endlessly glorifying your worthy name. May we be moved and shaped by what you have done in ways that are appropriate and that touch all that we say and do and think. Meet us for we need you. Give us insight for we need that from you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there are a number of views that Christians have concerning how we should understand these verses and the week of creation. Now, those different views that Christian have, these are not gospel issues, so the difference in how people view creation week should not bring separation between God's people over it. There are Christians whom I highly respect that hold other views with which I disagree. And although these views are held by faithful Christians, my concern is with some of them that they open the door to understanding that is less than faithful and not always helpful for how we understand the Word of God, how we approach it. So this morning I want to start by reviewing kind of four major categories of views that I don't think are helpful. And this section, a significant part of the sermon, it's not how I normally like to preach. It's not normally how we preach. Uh, much rather be presenting, this is what God's Word does say. However, uh, the impact of these different views is prominent 
in the culture and is prominent within the church. And so for that reason, I think it's important to give some time. I'm just going to deal briefly with each view. There's more I could say about each one. I just want to give kind of the essence of it and and how I think Scripture deals with it. Um, I have spent months and have gone through thousands of pages and stacks of books in preparing for this. And now none of that makes my views any better. Uh, I just say that so that you know uh, that I, I have prepared. This is not just I've read a few things this week and came up with an opinion. Um, I have tried to give the best diligence I can so that we could approach and present God's word as faithful as we can. So the first, if you're still thanking me at the end, that's a plus. <laughs> the first is a theory that's been around a long time, which is the gap theory. Uh, this states that there is a huge gap of time between verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and verse 2, that the earth was at, without form and void. Uh, they say that huge period of time uh, is when Satan's rebellion in the heavens came and affected the earth and brought catastrophic destruction. And it is during that period of time when great destruction came upon the original creation that the hundreds of millions of years that have since taken place for the development of life that we know took place. So it's, it's a way to where do we put all the time science has, has happened into creation week. And so they create a gap and stick it there. They translate the phrase without form and void as chaos. And so they're saying there was chaos, meaning God created it, but now it's chaotic and God had to come back in and bring new order. However, inserting a gap there is arbitrary. The scripture doesn't lead us to that conclusion. And that's not how we handle Scripture. As much as we want, may want to see something, we can never place it into Scripture. We can only take what it gives us. We must never put in, regardless of how much we want it there, anything that is not clearly presented. Using the word chaos in verse 2 instead of without form and void, which makes their view seem to make more sense, is an unnecessary grammatical insertion. And I think Jesus seems to rule out this kind of catastrophic event in Mark 13, verse 9, when Jesus is speaking about what to come. And Jesus says this, in those days, speaking of days ahead, there will be such tribulation. I think I gave you nine and it's 19, so that was my mistake. I just noticed 
My notes say 19, and I gave him nine, so. In those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and will never be. So Jesus is saying, since the beginning, verse 1, the beginning of creation, there will be tribulation, there will be catastrophic judgment that comes which has not yet come, and we've never seen what will take place in that destructive power. Jesus seems to indicate that what is described as being is in the future, but it has not happened between verses 1 and 2. Moving on, the second theory, which again has been around quite a long time, is the day-age theory, which is that creation did follow the the six-day path, but each of the days was a long age. Each of the days was tens of millions of years. Uh, the problem with that view is it accepts and endorses an evolutionary approach to creation, which is both biblically unsound and, to be honest, it's scientifically unworkable. As popular as it is, scientifically, evolution comes up against so many barriers that scientifically declare it simply cannot be. The scientific law of thermodynamics, which shows that systems fall into greater chaos and randomness, throwing Huge amounts of time actually brings disorder, not the development of something higher. That's a scientific law that all science accepts, except in this area. It's impossible for non-organic material to produce what is necessary for life. Chemical compounds cannot cross the bridge into bringing life. There is nothing in the evolutionary system that allows proteins to become what is needed to create life. There simply is no mechanism that anyone can identify. Statements are thrown out, but nothing has ever been duplicated, scientifically produced, or proven that living Organisms can come from that which had no life in them. And add to that the complexity of the human cell. Evolution is based upon this great simplicity that over time became more complicated. And it begins with just the cell which for centuries was, the human cell was thought of something incredibly simple. And, and yet, the human cell is incredibly complex. Impossible for randomness to create the cell. In each human cell, in just the nucleus of it, there is a coded database longer in formation content. The content in the nucleus of every cell, if it's laid out, it is longer than the 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. That cannot randomly come into place. 
Well, what about theistic evolution? God helped it along. One great concern with this is if there's evolution of any kind, and then you're saying, well, it's God doing it. That means there were, there were tens of thousands of years in which death took place upon the face of the earth. That creatures were born and died for thousands of years before sin entered the word in the world in the Garden of Eden. And where God has said, what will produce death? That somehow death was already taking place, which makes what we have in chapter 3 of Genesis empty in what it claims sin does and how death came. It is a reworking of foundational truths that lead to the gospel, which is the foundational truth. The Bible treats Adam as a historic person. The genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3 goes to Adam. 2 Timothy 2.13 speaks of Adam as a real person. Jude verse 14 speaks of Adam as a real person. Gospel theology requires there was one man through whom all humanity came. That is a gospel issue. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 to 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, in Adam, through his sin all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul expands this considerably. The third view. This is becoming much more popular, particularly with scholars. The writer of Genesis used ancient mythologies of that time, primarily the Babylonians and the Egyptians. The author is taking the, the mythology about how the world came into being that's in all the cultures at that time, and they believe that mythology is true because those who believe this theory are saying they're ancient men who just didn't understand, so they also believed in mythology. However, they did know who truly was God. So they're taking ancient mythology... They're interpreting that, well, that must be how the world came into being. It's what everyone thinks. However, we're going to show there's only one God, not a, a pantheism of gods. There is one God from whom that happened, but God allowed their ignorance in mythology because he wanted the focus of just one true God existing to be proclaimed. And so those who hold to ancient cosmologies as what chapter 1 tells us, then chapter 1, we just pull the theology out and ignore the mythology that's there. It's true that God used men in their place and time and with their language and with their culture as Scripture is written. 
However, fundamentally, the Bible, beginning to end, is a supernatural book. And the human part of it, men writing in their language and culture, can never override the supernatural quality of the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. 2 Peter 2.21, speaking of Scripture, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. To declare Genesis 1 as myth, and we pick out the good stuff, weakens biblical authority. And so when do the myths end? That is chapter 3 a myth? Adam and Eve, are they a myth? The temptation, is that a myth? The Tower of Babel, Babel is, is that a myth? Is the flood a myth? It, keep taking it, is God in flesh myth? Resurrection from the dead myth. Once we start saying a part of Scripture is just myth that God allowed, we have opened the door to wherever something doesn't seem to fit. Uh, it's just myth. And think of the, the writer throughout the history of the church, in ancient times, the writer of the Pentateuch, the first five books, including Genesis, is Moses. Moses was not a superstitious ancient man. Moses knew the person of God. Moses interacted with the person of God and the voice of God in ways that have not been seen otherwise. To put him in the category of ancient men who really didn't understand Somewhat arrogant. And then the last view that I'll present, the framework theory, which has become very popular and is increasingly widespread. And again, by men whom I respect immensely and who I respect so much, I'm cautious to disagree. I, I needed to be careful because I respect their understanding of Scripture and their faithfulness. However, this view is that Genesis 1 is poetry. So it cannot be either historical or chronological. The bulk of this is, they say, if you look at days 1 to 3... And then days four to six, they're parallels. And so the, the form of parallel between God forming and then days four to six, which is the God filling, that that's all a poetical picture. And they would add to it the fact that there is morning and evening, the first day, second day, all the way through. When it comes to the seventh day, 
uh, it never kind of gives an end to it. So it just keeps going, which all of that tells us this is poetry. And so we should deal with it as poetry. It's telling us about the nature of God, but what took place didn't happen that way. Well, the fact that you can identify some parallels doesn't turn the chapter into poetry. And when you actually look at the parallels, it's not as neat as they claim. But the rest of the Bible treats chapter 1 as historical record. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. In six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. The Bible treats it as this is what God did historically. Even stronger in my mind. As we saw in Genesis 1, there are at least 40 references to God in action. In every verse, we're seeing what God says and sees and does. It's in its entirety, it is what God is doing. In addition, God speaks. God speaks 11 times. He is quoted. God is quoted. There are, in the English translation, 381 words of quotation. I know that because I had Chris Felipe count. <laughs> it is well over 40% of the chapter is God speaking. And we, we take all of that and by our, we take the authority to say, God, God didn't really say that. I couldn't possibly think of coming before God knowing I had told his people that he never said what the Bible declares he said. I cannot go there. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it quotes God from Genesis 1. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. as we think of all these theories that Christians hold, I don't see how any of these theories help us exalt God more. I don't see how any of them strengthen our confidence in Scripture. And I don't see how any of them strengthen any theological doctrine but I can see how they can erode the edges of the doctrines and how we view Scripture. 
And though orthodox men can hold these views, my concern is those who hear them without orthodoxy can become loose and soft with the authority of Scripture, and it doesn't mean what it says, and how do we know? All of these theories are for one reason. Everyone has the same root. They are in response to the claim that science proves the world is incredibly old. And so we have to come to some way of agreeing with that. What is now referred to as deep time is the phrase that is now used for billions and billions of years. We have to account for deep time. Uh, I'll just mention a couple of thoughts about that huge subject, but just a few thoughts, and then we'll move on to the text. Age testing of the earth, of which there are many forms, is incredibly complicated. But what is measured to determine age, what is measured is always based on human assumptions about the beginnings and how things were at the beginning. What was the beginning? Assumptions of beginnings is used to determine what it is we're measuring in the earth. And the assumptions are that it's old and that God had nothing to do with it. Secondly, a functioning universe would have had to have been created in full maturity, as was Adam. Adam had to be created with all of his bodily functions in full maturity, and so was the earth. For there to be a complex earth that would sustain life, the, the earth was created in full maturity. The fact that the light from stars, which are thousands of years away in terms of how fast light could come, but in an instant, the light was here. And something we'll get into as we move later through Genesis, globe, a global flood, as we see in Genesis, would have unimaginable effects on sediment layers and the shape and form of the earth. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? And you've all seen pictures of it. And so all the layers of the Grand Canyon, it's either 13 or 17 different ages that are said to be where uh, you know, the forces of the earth came in and left a layer and, and ended in each age is hundreds of millions of years. And yet, just picture what you've seen personally, or a photograph, and all of these layers are completely even like a cake. And yet, if there was a hundred million years between each layer, each of those layers would be greatly impacted and reshaped by forces of nature. It would be impossible for there to be perfectly level layers if it occurred over hundreds of millions of years. And the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980 produced formations of earth and fossil remains so quickly in ways that we've never seen. So there 
is evidence in the earth around St. Helens that we previously would say had taken millions of years, happened either in hours or in just a few years. And so how we understand what took place, maybe we're not as smart as we think we are about knowing what took place. Creation is not contradictory to science. The Bible isn't denying science. But many who interpret science are contrary to God. And their theories of how things took place, uh, the possibility that God created everything is not even a possibility. It's not even to be considered. And so when you start with this, we know it's not God creating. Well, how can you come to anything that would be in agreement? Pure science describes the realities of God's work. But science can never account for a supernatural reality. And creation was a supernatural reality. And so it, it will never be proven by science because we're declaring it, it was not natural. It was God speaking and bringing into existence. It was the supernatural power of God. You will not be able to prove that in a laboratory. And once we don't accept the supernatural qualities of creation, uh, then what about all of the supernatural realities of Christ? You can't prove a virgin birth that his death paid the penalty of all our sin or that he who is dead was bodily raised and that he reigns in heaven. None of that can be proven. It is all the supernatural power and reality of God. And so our position on Genesis 1, which is not new, the first chapter of the Bible is historical, chronological, and literal. And there's all kinds of questions that come up because it's bigger than all of our minds. But this is the natural reading of Genesis 1. And that's a basic rule of interpreting Scripture. What's the natural reading of it? And when you read the first chapter, as we did... The natural reading is not the gap theory. It's not day-age. The natural reading is the day-by-day movement of God methodically creating what we know. And the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible treats chapter 1 as historical, as we will see as the storyline continues. We should not let those who deny that creation is supernatural intimidate us into forming different views. Yes. Romans chapter 1 warns us of this. Romans 1 verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made. What is true of God has been made clear by what was created. The scripture says. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So let's move to what encourages us then in this chapter. We don't want to simply be against things. (laughs) Much more we're for things. What do we learn from the days of creation? And this will be much faster for those of you who start to get a little worried. Day by day, creation is meant to draw out the majesty of God that we would be overwhelmed by him. At first we see atoms and molecules brought into existence without order, form, or fruitfulness. The earth was without form and void, darkness over the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering. There is, as of yet, no laws of nature. Nothing can happen until the mind and will of God comes upon it. Time could not move creation forward. Only God could separate light from darkness, the waters from the expanse, waters from the earth. Only God could do that, and only God could call life into being. On day one, the majesty of God is displayed as light suddenly appears without any need of sun, moon, or stars, which wouldn't be till day four. God simply declares light into existence. And merely by the power of his word, it was so. And should that surprise us? In Revelation, we're told more than once that in the new heaven and earth, it will not be the sun that brings light, but the glory of the lamb himself. On day two, we see, and in every day following, with every let there be declaration, and it was so. As it is with every promise he makes, every truth about you he utters. In day three, creation immediately has fruitfulness. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind. And we see by God's power order to all things. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, fruit trees according to their own kind. And then down later, each animal according to its kind. Nine times that expression, according to its kind. We see God's intimate involvement. It is God who named day, night, earth, sea. Because all of it 
was and remains his. Day four and five, we see the abundance of God in creating stars innumerable. Stars beyond the reach of our eye that over time we just find more and more we are meant to be astonished. The abundance of God in the vast array of creatures, verse 20, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens and God created great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to their kinds. The abundant heart of God, the creativity of God and day by day we see God's joy in what he created, knowing in all of it, it was good. And today we read Genesis 1, not only in the majesty of the words there, we, we read it with the light of all Scripture informing us about what God did We know that the voice that spoke existence into being was one day born into the world he created. John chapter 1. Let's look at these verses on the screen. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we know that among the trees so carefully fashioned on that day of creation was the ancestor of that tree which would become the cross upon which he himself would die and in the soil on that day he embedded the metallic ore that would become the nails and the spearhead that would be driven into his flesh and he gave being to those things knowing what would be done to him, what would be required for this beauty he created to be restored. We know that those he would create on the sixth day in his own image would so quickly turn away. Some, some yes, even denying that he ever spoke or existed. And yet he still, he still chose to create this world and us. 
knowing what we would do and what it would cost him. And so we know that however much majesty we see in the creation of the world, it is surpassed by the majesty of the Son of God become flesh and dying for the sins of all who would believe in him forever, making us clean and whole and inviting us to spend our eternity with him. And believers, this is the God who holds you and in his surpassing greatness. This is the God who keeps and cares for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we declare your greatness. Beyond words or thought, beyond actions of faithfulness, there is no response we can give appropriate, yet we give who we are and what we have for your worthiness. And we trust you and what you say, and what you do, and your faithfulness and your goodness. We, we will keep going back to that. That is our foundation. And so we give praise to you, our Lord and King Jesus. Amen.